0: Just, once again, your word, the opportunity uh, to be together, to learn from it. And today, God, I just pray that um, your spirit would guide and lead us to see you a little bit more clearly, um, to see the beauty of what you've given, and, uh, and Lord, that we would respect and train in it. Uh, may your spirit guide and lead us here this morning. So, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, <clears throat> if you're listening on the podcast later, it snowed a ton today, so we are small, but we are mighty here uh, at church. Uh, so uh, we're continuing in on this series called Strong in the Lord. Um, and uh, I wanna begin by giving you uh, just something I was thinking about this this last week that fits for us today. Um, <clears throat> how many of you remember uh, going through the process of getting your driver's license. Anybody remember this? What, what was that like for you? What was that journey like? What did, what did it require? It was, the best day ever. it was the best day ever, all right? The day that you finally got the keys to the car, right? I hope that your parents didn't begin by just handing you keys to a car and said, all right, now go drive, because that's not how it's supposed to go. What, what else happened in the process? A test, all right. Uh, who had to take a written test? No. Who had, you didn't have to take a written test? I, my permit and then they kind of were like, okay, cool, next. <laughs> wow, okay. I got my permit when I was 20. Nice. And they let me just go past in a couple months and take a it. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> How many of you had to take a, like a, a field exam where you had to go and drive? All right, mostly everybody here. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you took driver's ed through your school? Absolutely not. All right, we're a little bit more divided on this. So, so I was talking to my dad um, about this uh, adventure as a parent because I'm the oldest in uh, in my family. I just have a younger brother. And, uh, and when I turned 16, I had my, my driver's license, took the test and all that. And I was like, hey, Dad, uh, tell me what that was like for you as a parent to go through that season in time. And, uh, and he told me a bunch of information, and it kind of boils down to these two things. He said, there's two things I really want you to get uh, when you are learning how to drive. I want you to learn how to respect the car, but that's also going to come with some training. Uh, when I was 16, uh, my parents gifted me this car right here. 1988 Chevrolet Celebrity. It looked exactly like that, copper brown, except there was a lot more rust on it, but you couldn't tell that there was rust because of the color of the car. Just matched really perfectly. And um, and. And my parents, I remember my dad, when he had gifted me this car, I, w- I did not really necessarily want this car. In fact, I took my driver's exam in a purple Plymouth Voyager minivan because I was so embarrassed of this thing, but it was a gift from my parents. And, and my parents wanted me to respect the car. I remember my dad telling me that, David, there's a big difference between getting in an accident in your bicycle than in your car. And so he wanted me to see that you have to have respect for this thing, for this car. And for my parents, uh, they, they absolutely loved this car. While I didn't necessarily like it, uh, when, when they first got married, this was the first big purchase that they bought together was this car. And so my dad, I remember him telling me this, is that he said that I want you to see this car like I see it. I want you to respect this car like I respect it. So that requires some, some training. And I remember certain little phrases that my dad would tell me as I had my driver's permit and I was learning how to drive. I mean, it was certainly paying attention to the road and the music shouldn't be too loud and, and i to have both hands on the steering wheel and all of these kinds of rules. But there were also other smaller rules that came with the training in the McGinley household to respect this car. One of them that my dad taught me was that the car is not a garbage can, in that you should not throw any of your trash in the car, especially the side compartments of the car. This is something that was not taught uh, to my wife in her family, all right, because we have trash in the side compartments of our car and something that we're working on, all My dad also uh, taught me, uh, he wanted me to learn how to change a tire. And interestingly, uh, I said, where did that come from? He's like, well, my dad, uh, he said he remembered vividly his dad teaching him how to do that. Because if you were stuck in the middle of nowhere, you needed to know how to pull the spare out and use the crank and be able to do that. And, And so the way that he trained me in doing that is that I would have to rotate the tires on this car in our garage, said, why did you make me do that? My dad said literally this. Well, number one, I'm cheap. Secondly, I wanted you to know that if you were ever in danger, that this is how you can do that, that you would be comfortable with these things. That there would require respect in handing over these keys because there's power in it, in the car, but that comes with, with training." Uh, today, we're going to continue in this series called Strong in the Lord, and, um, and we are looking at another piece of armor that Paul is describing in Ephesians 6, and I want those two words to dominate our thinking when we think about this piece of armor, respect and training. And Notice the piece that we're talking about here today. Paul says this, that as you are in this battle against the evil one, you don't fight empty-handed, but he says that you are given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is by far the coolest part of the armor, and in fact, I have uh, a replica sword from a Roman soldier here. This is, uh, you know, real deal, like from China, real deal. But um, pretty, pretty cool. And uh, and if you were to feel this sword, and you certainly can come up and hold it later if you'd like, uh, this thing is actually kind of heavy. The Roman soldiers, when they had this sword, it wasn't uh, some sword that they would like swing over their head or throw and toss at somebody. Because if you were to do that, your arm would just get tired. But remember when we talked about the shield of faith, that big shield that we have, uh, that the Roman soldiers would have this massive shield and then they would have this sword. And they would hold the sword at their side that when the enemy would come forward, they would be able to thrust the sword forward. They wouldn't swing it above their head. Instead, they would thrust it forward, which is why the sword would come to a point. And not to get too gruesome, but this is for you dudes out there, uh, that they would have this pointed sword. uh, And the reason they designed it that way is that when the enemy got close, they would aim to take that point and put it right through the enemy's belly. The purpose of pulling it easily back out so that then the enemy attacking them would just ultimately bleed to death. This thing required respect. It has power. And it also came with training. They didn't just give it to the young kids and say, hey, why don't you go and play with the sword today? It required training as well. But notice here what Paul's saying about the sword of the Spirit. There's a couple of things that are really interesting here in just a small little verse. He says this, And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul here doesn't leave any mystery as to what is the sword in our fight against the evil one. He's saying that what it is is the word of God, the scriptures that we have. This is a powerful thing that God has given us to fight the evil one. And notice here that he says... In, in that first little part, that we need to get this point here. He says, and the sword of the Spirit, whose is it? The Word of God, whose is it? Is it mine? No, it's the Spirit's. In fact, another place in scripture says this, talking about how we get the word of God. In 2 Peter 1, 21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus would say in John that he came into this world and he would leave this world and he would give his disciples the Holy Spirit. That they would go and share this good word and good news. That the word of God, we believe, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, yet is written through human hands. This is an important distinction for us to get. The Spirit has worked through God's word. It's not just some average text that we have, but it certainly works through Human beings. So again, look at Paul's words here. He says that the sword of the Spirit, that whose it is, is ultimately the Spirit's. The word of God has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing that I know about the scriptures, and here's what I know about the Bible: is that it will not always be to your advantage. The word of God, if you are reading all of the word, there will be the most beautiful words that you could ever hear. The most beautiful truths that we will ever hear about our God and the grace and the mercy that he provides. But there will also be times where, where things will not be, or things that will be said that will be offensive to us. There will be some stuff that we don't like. And famously, there's been people who have tried to just cut out certain parts of Scripture, but we have to deal with this reality that, that the Word of God is going to be beautiful and also offend us at times. In fact, uh, this is the first thing that I want us to get here. Um, if you can go to the next slide for me here. It's that we need to respect the Word of God because it is God's. It's not our own. It was given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at the text, we should see it through the lens like you saw that first car that you drove with respect because it has power. Beautiful power, yet also can be challenging. Look at these words in Hebrews chapter 4. I love This Bible passage, it says this, speaking of the word of God, that it is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, where we need to begin with the word of God, as God has given us this powerful word, is that it starts in a place of respect. Because it's not ours. It's God's. But it also needs training it 's a lifetime of training. I remember um, gosh, a-, a while ago, Gretchen and I uh, went on a trip to New York City, the first time we ever went to New York city and Um, and we did a bunch of sightseeing and just went out there to go see a bunch of cool things. And uh, one of the places that we went to was the Museum of Modern Art uh, in like Midtown or something like that, and yeah, wherever. But um, uh, I'm not really one that's into art. I'm not one that desires to go to a bunch of art museums because most of the time I'm just sitting there thinking, I don't know what I'm looking at, right? Like okay, this is cool. That's what you see, all right. Uh, and so there's like four stories of this museum of modern art, and um, and I'm just kind of like trying to pretend like I understand what's going on. If you've ever been there before, and um, and I came across this piece of art, and it stopped me in my tracks. Um, because when I saw this piece, it had me thinking. You know, when I looked at uh, this piece, and this is actually a photo from my phone, I wish I would have written down the description that came with it. But, but when you look at this piece, what does it look like? It's a book. But if you look closely, there's all of a sudden these nails and pieces of uh, metal and things that are intended to hurt and harm and cause division that are coming from this book. As a Christian, I was like quickly looking to see, all right, was the artist's, artist's idea to like say, this is the word of God and, and this is what it does in our world? And, and I don't remember if it was that, but it got me thinking, man, this is oftentimes how the word of God has been used. I mean, you don't have to make a whole lot of stretches historically to point out that people have used the word of God in some really bad ways. I mean, look at the next picture. Just from last couple weeks ago. All of a sudden, people raiding our Capitol building and doing so in the name of Jesus. I mean, historically speaking, we can look at uh, as well that, that people in the slave trading industry in America did so out of justification because of the word of God. And they used God's word in a way that, quite frankly, it was never intended to be used. Now, to be very clear, though, while God's word can be used by evil and be used in all kinds of wicked ways, there were also those who, out of the conviction of the scriptures, that sought out to abolish slavery. And so I want us to be clear here that when we look at the Word of God that we're really willing to understand that we got to train ourselves in what it actually says. Amen? Look at the second point here because this is what it is. These words require a lifetime of training. And I know if there's something to be very true that that. That God's word is going to be used to manipulate and to, uh, to try to make it to our own advantage instead of remembering that it's God's word and not ours. So, so let me, uh, how do I know that? Let me, let me point you to a story here. Go to the next picture here. Uh, I know this will happen because it happened to Jesus. You can read this story later. This is in Matthew chapter four. It's this really interesting story that Jesus is baptized in Matthew's account of the gospel. And Mark and Luke, by the way, also tell this story. But after that moment, Jesus is banished and thrown into uh, the wilderness. It would have looked like this. You could go there today. More like a desert than just like uh, a, a, a wilderness of like trees and jungle. And we read that in Matthew's account, we get some detail here, that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, and all of a sudden, Satan appears and tempts him. Now, uh, what Matthew tells us is this, Jesus had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Gee, thanks, Matthew. (laughs) Captain Obvious has appeared, right? So Satan shows up and he says this to Jesus. He says that if you are the son of God, hold on a second, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus responds by saying, man does not live by bread alone. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. See, Satan shows up and tries to tempt him with some food, knowing that he's hungry. Jesus says, nope, that's not the will of God. Here's the next part, the next temptation that comes in verses five through six. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Notice what Satan is doing here. That he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. Here's the really important part that we need to understand with the training aspect is that Satan is quoting the word of God here. If you know from the very beginning, this is what the evil one will do in the Garden of Eden. Did not God say? He's not oblivious to the power of these words. And in fact, here, he's trying to use them against Jesus. But notice how Jesus answers here in verse seven. He says this. Jesus said, again, it is written. He's not just trying to come up with his own wisdom here. He's saying, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus was trained up on the word of God. He knew the power that these words held. Because I want us to get this. You cannot understand a verse unless you, un- unless you take in the whole context of the book. And you can't understand a whole book unless you take it into the context of the whole Bible. See, what is happening too much in our society is we pick and choose the things that we like. And we say, this is what I want. This is how God is supposed to be. But instead, we need to look at the whole So what's the whole context of this spiritual warfare that is going on (laughs) that Paul is talking about? What's the whole context of of who our God is? I'm gonna try to do this here in a couple minutes because I want us to understand the meta-narrative, the bigger piece of who our God is and how he acts. And this is how I would tell that story. I would say that our God is seen as a divine warrior, In fact, one of the first places that we see our God being a divine warrior is in the story of the Exodus. Maybe you've read this before. It's the second book of the Bible. God's people are in slavery. They are being oppressed by Pharaoh in Egypt. And what happens is God hears the cry of his people and he appoints Moses to be one who will speak on behalf of him. Remember, Moses continually comes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. It culminates with this moment known as the Passover and God's people flee out and they go to the Red Sea. You know the story, right? It appears that they're trapped because the enemy is coming from behind and instead Moses raises his hands as God had instructed him to and as he does, God brings this massive wind from the east and all of a sudden the waves form walls and God's people walk straight through, known as the Exodus. And in fact, this story of the Exodus is one of the most common stories that's told throughout scripture and they would recite it over and over again to each other to remind them that their God is a divine warrior, that he fights for us. But here's what's interesting. The story continues. And as God's people are in the wilderness, some begin to say things like, man, it really wasn't that bad in slavery. I wish we could go back. And in fact, what we read it is that God's people, who are a set-apart people, also contribute in evil and brokenness. They're not exempt from that. In fact, they contribute to it as well. And what we see in the history of our God being a divine warrior it is, is that God goes ultimately to war against them. Because he's a holy God. One who comes after the evil that is going on even in his people. And what that teaches us about our God is that he's not some tribal deity. But instead he is against all evil. Whoever does it. And so the prophets come and they talk about this divine warrior God who continues to fight against evil, this war that is going on. Thousands of years later, this guy Jesus shows up, the one that they had been talking about. And what's interesting is this. Jesus appears as this divine warrior, but he doesn't fight like previous kings or warriors would. I mean, think about it. Think about the teachings that you hear and know of Jesus. See, the people wanted him to be this guy who was gonna come on this big throne and and put his people back on the map. But instead, Jesus comes and he he heals the sick. Instead, Jesus comes as a divine warrior and, and he spends his time with the people that you wouldn't ever imagine. Jesus shows up and he says, I tell you not to just love those who love you back. That's easy to do. But I tell you to love those who hate you and to pray for those who persecute you. And, and he wouldn't just be a one, who, one that would just come and teach us some things. It, he would embody all of those things, leading him to the point of death on a cross. Instead of coming with a sword in his hands, he put nails in his hands, becoming the sacrifice and conquering sin, death, and the devil for you and for me. What kind of warrior is this? What kind of divine warrior is this? Pastor David doesn't sound that cool. Actually, I would argue he's the exact one that we need. Because if Jesus shows up and he just comes to be the divine warrior that takes out the Roman government during that time and put Israel on the map, we know how that story unfolds, right? We know that those who are given more power will just use that power to oppress other people. That's how broken we are as people. And if God shows up and is the divine warrior and he's just gonna take out all evil, well then, you and I don't really have a chance because we've contributed to that as well. See, he is the divine warrior that we need. He takes on sin, brokenness, and the devil for you and for me. What I'm trying to get at here is simply this. Our fight and our hatred should certainly be against evil. The evil one. This is something that we are fighting against over and over and over again. Something that we see in ourselves something that we see amongst other people. And in fact, come back next week. Hopefully it's not snowing (laughs) because we're going to talk about that, Of that Paul talks about this breastplate of righteousness protecting our heart and how we look at other people. We'll dive into that a little bit more. But I want you to understand and see today that the word of God that we have requires two things, respect. Respect that the word of God is God's word. And secondly, that these words require a lifetime of training. And I want to finish just with this beautiful passage from 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God that we are given from that armor is one that will bring teaching. It is one that will bring reproof, It is one that will bring correction and training and righteousness. And when we look at the word of God, I pray that it would drive us into places of where we respect who our God is and what he's done because it is his word, but that our lives would be ones that would train up in the promises that it brings. Let's pray. God, I thank you for for the hope and the promise that comes through your word. Lord, I know that that many will use your word to only their own advantage. Lord, we have much to repent of to be corrected by. Because often, God, it is much easier to to put a, Bible verses at the front of our minds that just remind us or make us feel good. Yet God, I pray that we would see your word as one that, that has you as the divine warrior. The one who's already declared victory through what you have done for us. And God, I pray that we would be captivated by that word. That in the complexity, the cultural differences, and frankly, the the political agendas that can be used today, I pray, God, that that we would be people to read your word and to, to, to respect it, to know the power that it brings, but that we would train and challenge one another by it. Just as you did in the desert against the evil one, I pray, Lord, that we would find life and hope in what you have said. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.